Hey, church family. If we haven't met yet, my name is Nick Mastrud, uh, the pastor to students, and I'm so grateful that you've joined us online today. Um, I'm actually going to be talking about a topic today that, that God has placed on my heart quite a while and has actually been working on my heart with this topic. Um, and it's a topic that I believe affects all other topics, and it's a reality of God that has very major implications on how we relate to Him and how we respond to Him, like our posture and demeanor towards God. And if I can be honest, I have been seeing and experiencing this shift in our culture um, towards apathy, uh, especially in the Christian culture, like apathy towards the things of God, apathy toward the church, apathy toward our calling and our first love and priorities as it relates to being followers of Jesus. And I even feel this tug in my own spirit towards apathy or this lackadaisical tenor toward God and of my worship to him every day. Like it's it's a fight. It's a struggle. And, and my prayer for our time today is not that it would be a harsh word or a shameful word, but that the scriptures, as we open up the scriptures and, and we open that up, that our hearts would, would be realigned. It would be aligned and that we would grow in our awareness of, and here's the topic, the holiness of God, the holiness of God. I believe that apathy flees at the knowledge and the sight of a holy God. It is very difficult to be apathetic towards something that you hold with such high esteem, Right. What does it mean to have a holy God as supreme and sovereign over not only this world, but over our lives? I love how R.C. Sprawl famously put it. He says this, there is no possible escape from the holiness of God. You are going to have to deal with it at some point. And this is both the most hopeful and terrifying thing to come to grips with. Like this is overwhelmingly hopeful because the blood of Jesus has become our advocate for holiness. His holiness was transferred to us. He traded his holiness and his righteousness. Sounds like a terrible trade, but he gave that for in exchange of our sin and our brokenness. This is known as the great exchange, but this is strikingly terrifying because we are not holy in and of ourselves. We're not holy in and of ourselves. Um, we're left to our own devices. We have no right. We have no opportunity. We have no chance of being in the presence of God. The, the journey of following Jesus is a journey of what was laid out in John 3.30 when it says, he must increase and I must decrease. So in light of who he is, may he, may God, the Holy One, become greater and greater and greater in this world and may, and, and, and may my life become less. May my desires become less. May my thoughts, my perspective, my preferences become less and less and less. When it comes to worshiping a holy God, we cannot be self-focused. We cannot be apathetic. The spotlight is on him. So when we remember his holiness, I believe all else fades. All else fades family, can we focus on God's holiness today? Can we reflect on and sit in his divine otherness for a moment and gain vision for holy living? So we jump in, let me pray. God, thank you so much for, for this church family, for the ways that you've been working in and through this community. And um, Father, we just want to see you. We want to make much of who you are. We want to grasp and get a glimpse of your holiness. So Jesus, work on our hearts. Help us to see you with, a, with clear vision. Help us to see you clearly today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things and offer ourselves. Amen. 
if you're a Christian or at all biblically literate, you will know that the Bible without question claims that God is holy. Um, in Isaiah 6, 3, um, we're provided with a very potent declaration. So the, the prophet Isaiah, at the moment of his calling, he received a vision of the Lord sitting on a throne with seraphim or angels on either side of him. And one seraphim said to the other seraphim, he said this famous line, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Notice the repetitive emphasis made in this declaration. It wasn't enough for the seraphim or the angel to say, God's holy. No, he, the, the seraph had to employ the word holy three times to capture the depth and breadth of God's holiness. Holy, holy, holy. That phrase is meant to stretch the boundaries of our imagination. What, whatever you think of when you hear that God is holy, you need to know that God is on an entirely different category of holiness. Like he is much holier than you ever thought holiness could be. But even holy, holy, holy was not enough for this angel as he tried to capture God's holiness. He had to say the whole entire earth is filled, it's full of his glory. How great is the holiness of the Lord of hosts? It's great enough to fill the entire earth. Again, these words are crafted under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to take our imagination where it has never gone. The, re- the repetitive language was meant to blow our minds with the thought that God is like He's unlike anything that we have ever encountered. It was meant to to humble you with the realization that God is fundamentally different from you, and yet you are made in his image. It's intended to help you understand that who you're dealing with is someone greater than anyone and everyone you have ever dealt with before. The Lord of hosts is holy, 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 and earth-filling and gloriously holy. I'm convinced that a single glimpse of God and his holiness will change you and I forever. I truly believe that. One of the most powerful moments at summer camp most recently was when students got to share about their experience at camp. And probably my favorite part of camp, a young middle school student walks up and he stands on stage and he's literally trembling and he's fighting back tears and, and these are the words, this is the only phrase that he said, and, and there wasn't a dry eye in the room just because we all kind of got a glimpse of this, but he said, God is so holy. This student gets it. He grasped something of his holiness. So what is holiness? Well, our translation for holiness comes from the Hebrew word kadash, which means to cut, to to. To be holy is to be cut off or separate from everything else. It's to be in a completely different category. It means to be on a totally different class of your own, distinct from anything that has ever existed or ever will exist. But Kadosh has a second meaning, which is to be entirely morally pure all the time and in every possible way. And when you put the two elements of holiness together, you're left with only one conclusion, that the Lord of hosts is the sum definition of what it means to be holy, which is this— God occupies a moral space that no one has ever occupied before, and as such, we have no experience or frame of reference to understand what he is like because there's nothing like him. And we see this played out in Scripture. Look at Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And in 1 Samuel 2, 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. God's holiness 
it's not an aspect of who he is or what he does. God's holiness is the essence of who he is. If you were to ask, how is the holiness of God revealed? The only right answer would be to say, in everything that he does. Everything God thinks, desires, speaks, and does is utterly holy in every way. God is holy in every attribute and every action. Think of it this way. He's holy in justice. He's holy in love. He's holy in mercy. He's holy in power. He's holy in sovereignty. He's holy in wisdom. He's holy in patience. He's holy in the way that he gets angry. He's holy in grace. He's holy in faithfulness. He's holy in compassion. Get this. He's even holy in his holiness. He's, he's like next level. He's like on another scale. It's not as if God is loving and just and sovereign and holy. He is all of those things in a separate category, a holy manner. So why is holiness important? First and foremost, the doctrine of hol- the holiness of God sits at the center of the grand narrative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without the holiness of God, there would be no moral law to which every human being is responsible. Without the holiness of God, there would be no divine anger with sin. Without the holiness of God, there would be no need for a perfect son sent as an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. Without the holiness of God, there would be no need for the vindication of the resurrection. Without the holiness of God, there would be no final defeat of Satan. Without the holiness of God, there would be no hope of a new heaven and a new earth where holiness will reign over us and in us forever. Yes, it is true that the biblical story would not be the biblical story if it were not written and controlled at every point by the one who is holy at all times and in every way. But let me make this a little bit more practical. God's holiness impacts us in three life-shaping ways that we're going to talk about today. The first one is this. Holiness provides comfort. In a world that seems so out of control, that seems so evil, where wrong seems to be rewarded and right seems to be unpunished or unnoticed, it's vital to remember the holiness of God. Every situation, location, or relationship that you have been in or are now in or will be under is under the care and the sovereignty of the one who is completely holy. Like at street level, it won't seem this way. But your Lord, your holy God is ruling. And and what he does is always right. And what he says is always true. And what he promises, take comfort in this, he will always deliver. And, And you have to preach this message to yourself over and over again. And I find myself having to come back to this. Evil is not in control. Injustice does not rule. Corruption is not king. Satan does not have victory. God is and always will be worthy of your trust for this one reason. Don't miss this. It's because he is holy. He is holy beyond your imagination. You can trust him. With holy power, he will defeat every evil thing and deliver us forever to a world free of all that is wrong. I cannot wait for that day. May we find comfort in that truth this morning that a holy God is in pursuit of his people. A holy God is in pursuit of of you. May we find deep, deep comfort in that this morning. And number two, holiness induces rebuke. To discover another impact that the holiness of God has in real life, we need to turn to Isaiah 6. Turn there with me if you could. Holiness provides a strong rebuke for those who are unholy, like you and I. Uh, Look at the prophet's response when he gets a tiny glimpse of the holiness of God here in verse 5. He says, woe is me, For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah gets a glimpse of God, 
and he comes to grips with the holiness of God. And Isaiah doesn't seem to have like this wow response to the holiness of God. He wasn't like, oh, oh, wow, this is a magnificent. Yes, he's absolutely blown away, but he's blown away at his brokenness because he recognizes how morally separated he is from the Lord. He sees the otherness of God. It's only in the face of the holiness of God that you and I, like Isaiah, will ever be broken by the disaster of the sin that lives within us. There's a strong rebuke there. If we were to be honest, if I were to be honest, I would say that sin doesn't always appear sinful. Oftentimes it's attractive, it's magnetic, and it's extremely normalized in our world. It's even um, at times under the guise of righteousness. It's, it's only in the face of, a whole, of the holiness of God that we fully realize that sin is more than a list of bad behaviors and more than breaking a set of abstract rules. Sin is a disastrous condition of the heart that causes us to willingly and repeatedly rebel against the authority of God and do what we were never intended to do. R.C. Sprawl says this, for a Christian to be a Christian, he must first be a sinner. Being a sinner is a prerequisite for being a church member. The Christian organization is one of the few organizations in the world that requires a public acknowledgement of sin as a condition for membership. It's the holiness of God that tells us that since we cannot escape ourselves, we need a savior who can do what we cannot do, rescue us from us. We need rescued from ourselves. You simply cannot consider the holiness of God without also mourning your sin and crying out for the grace of Jesus. I love how R.C. Sprawl continued to say, he says this, sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure and sovereign God. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given, given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deep implications of the slightest sin, of the most minute wrongdoing? What we are saying to our creator when we disobey him at the slightest point, we are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want, not what you command me to do. When we understand the character of God, when we grasp something of his holiness, then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and hopelessness. Helpless sinners can survive only by grace. Let me say that again. Helpless sinners can only survive by grace. Our strength is futile in itself. We are spiritually incapable without the assistance of a merciful God. We may dislike giving our attention to God's wrath and justice, but until we incline ourselves to these aspects of God's nature, we will never appreciate what has wrought for us by grace. To kind of summarize that, don't miss this point. If our sin really isn't that bad, then grace really isn't that good. If our sin really isn't all that bad, then grace really isn't all that good. Grace is insane because the alternative is insane. And sometimes we forget about the alternative. Grace is so absolutely breathtaking because the alternative is absolute destruction. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. May we worship Jesus today because of the insane grace that was extended in light of the destruction of our sin. Thank you for extending your holiness in the person of Jesus. Thirdly is this. Holiness defines our calling. 
because holiness is the essence of God's character, it becomes our calling as children by inheritance. We've inherited that calling. So look at 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you holy, you, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And here's the best way to understand that, that you are holy and you have been called to be holy. If you are God's child, you stand before him as righteous because the perfect righteousness of Jesus has been given over to your personal account. But there's a second aspect to this. Look at this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Get this phrase right here. You are not your own. You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So that's the second point there is you are not your own. To say that you are holy means that you have been set apart by God's grace for God's purposes. You've been set aside by God's grace for God's purposes. Your allegiance is no longer to the kingdom of your success or your happiness or your comforts in life or pleasures in life, but your allegiance is to him and to the progression of his kingdom on this earth being established here. And where, where do you do this? How do you do this? Where do you do this? You do this wherever you are, whomever you're with, whatever you're doing. Let me say that again. Wherever you are, whomever you're with, and whatever you're doing, church, family, we have been called to holy living. This means that that between the already of your conversion and the not yet of your home going, obedience matters. Every thought, every desire, every word, every choice, every action must be done in a spirit of humble surrender to what God has asked us to. And as you consider the impossibility of this call, on our own, this is impossible, let me say. No matter how hard you try, God calls us to be holy, but he doesn't leave us on our own in this. He sends us his Holy Spirit to live inside of us so that we would have wisdom and strength that we need to surrender to to his holy call in everything that we do. So now with that, the, the backdrop that God is holy, We are sinful. We need the holy blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit within us to live this new life. What are our temptations, especially in in this cultural climate? Um, Lately, I've been seeing these memes. They're called like the normalized meme. Have you guys seen this? Like it says, um, some of them are really funny. Some of them are kind of ridiculous. But one that I read the other day said this, normalize having a belief and then changing it based on new information. So normalize having a belief and then change, normalize changing your belief because of new information. And honestly, in the Christian culture, myself included in that, I think there's something similar that could be said. And that's normalize reading the Bible, normalize reading scripture, and even disagreeing with scripture, and coming to the conclusion that I might be wrong and the Bible is most likely the correct one in this. Like, let's normalize assuming that God is holy and his holy word is correct over my thoughts, feelings, and belief. Like, normalize being corrected by the scripture. Normalize changing your view because of what scripture says. Normalize making God's word ultimate over your feelings. We need to normalize the fact that God is holy, that he is sovereign, that he is other than. Like, if God only ever agrees with with you and, and your thoughts and your feelings and how you think things should be, does that, God looks very much like myself and not like the otherness of who God is. And maybe, just maybe, Um, If he is saying something that I disagree with, I have a hunch that maybe he is correct and I may not be. 
in this book called Life After Doubt by AJ Swoboda that I would highly recommend. He said something that I thought hit home for what we're up against in our modern culture. He says this, if I, a white Christian male, were to take the elements of someone else's culture and use them for my own purposes, they would call it cultural appropriation. But if I take the ancient writings of the Bible and I change them to fit my purposes with no regard for the intent with which it was written, they would call me enlightened and evolved. And hear me out, I'm not saying that there's no room for wrestling with big topics about God and faith. I'm not saying read everything and apply it at face value. If that were the case, we'd have people with eyes gouged out and hands cut off in this very room. We have the freedom and encouragement to ask good questions. In fact, there is so much um, faith deconstruction going on in the U.S. because we haven't asked those big questions about God and faith. And I think AJ, he touches on that too. He continues and says this, never stop asking questions. The questions are good, but we should stop thinking that our questions can bring about a different God. Repentance is waking up to the fact that we don't get to love the God we want. True worship is loving the God who is. In the end, it's easier to try to change the God of the Bible than to change our lives. Usually we go for the more convenient option. It is always going to be easier to bend the ways of God around our lives than to bend our lives around the ways of God. That is money. In what ways are you most tempted to bend the scriptures around your beliefs or feelings? How does the holiness of God shape the way that you treat his word? There are so many thoughts. There's so many beliefs about God or a higher power. There's thousands of religions, thousands of professed little g gods. In a world that believes in a plurality of gods, we see in the scriptures over and over again that there is one true God. And I'm just going to zip through a bunch of these passages, but listen to this. Before me, there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. There's only one God. I am the first and I am the last and there's no God beside me. Another verse, is there any God beside me or is there any other rock? I know of none. Another verse here, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no other God. Another verse here, I am the Lord and there is no other. And then finally, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none except me. On and on and on and on. God is saying, I am the one, I am the way. This is it. This is the point of the scriptures that there is one holy God who has come to save the people who desperately need him. And what we see in scripture and in Elijah at Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, um, he's mocking their God and he's saying, um, uh, keep, keep praying, see what happens. He says, like, cut yourself open, pray to your gods. Maybe they aren't um, answering you. You can find this in 1 Kings 18, but maybe they're not answering you because they're relieving themselves in the bathroom. Or maybe they're on vacation. Like, how come you guys are praying and nothing's happening? And then he says, now watch what happens when I pray to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And look what happens, because this is what the only true God can do. So go ahead and pray to your block of wood. And then there's another time we see in, in 1 Samuel 5 when the Philistines um, steal the Ark of the Covenant uh, of like God's dwelling place and they put it next to their God. Uh, their, their God, Dagon, is formed by uh, these big rock statues and they put the Ark ne- next to this big statue and they wake up one morning and the statue has been knocked over. And they're like, what in the world? So they prop it back up and then the next day, They go back out there and this thing is knocked over again, only this time like the arm and the head of the statue is broken off. Um, And and why is that? 
there's no other God. God's like, dude, don't put me next. Like, we're not lining Dagon up with me. I'm on a totally different category. I'm on another level. Don't make something out of rock or wood. Don't put me next to an idol. There is none like him. And then in Isaiah 44, he's talking about idols that people make. And he talks about how people cut down trees and use wood to make idols. Listen to this. I'll read it real quickly. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it up himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a God and worships it. What? He, He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it is burned in the fire. Over this half, he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, ah, I'm so warm. I have seen the fire, but the rest of it he makes into a God, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships, and he says, and he prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, and this is the illogical part. I have burned half of it in the fire and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat over it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination and fall down before a block of wood. So he's going, where is the logic to this? You just took these elements and made food and now you're going to bow down to it like it's your God. What in the world? Where's the mindset in this? And before we get too quick to judge, I'm thinking... We're not too much different in our day and age. We're not too much different. People create these gods not out of wood, but what I see more likely than not in our day is people make gods out of their own minds, their own thoughts. And they go, you know what? I think God is a God who doesn't judge. Or they go, how could a loving God actually judge somebody? Or, I th- or they go, I think God is a God of love who would never punish anybody, or I think God is a God who would never create me with certain desires and then ask me to deny myself. And I, I, I think God is this way because it's what I feel. That's what we're tempted to do. We don't worship in the form of wood or rocks, maybe some of us do, um, but we're tempted to worship or give ultimate allegiance to our personal or preferred thoughts or feelings. We're tempted to think a thought and try to bend it around the realities of God. We're, we're tempted to use our own logic and feelings and say, I know the scriptures say one thing, but because I feel another thing and it feels true to me, then it must be true. We have to go back to what the Bible says. Remember, he is the Holy One. Where does a discussion of the holiness of God lead us? I think it primarily leads us to celebrate his grace. Because of God's grace, we are comforted by his holy rule. Because of his grace, we become aware of the gravity of sin that affects all of us. Because of his grace, we run to God for help and not away from him in fear. Because of his grace, God appointed his perfect son to be the perfect sacrifice for imperfect people. Because of his grace operating within us, we experience both the conviction of sin and a desire to live holy lives. Because of his grace, we have been invited to live in God's holy presence forever and ever. The holiness of God decimates our autonomy and self-sufficiency, and it drives us to our Savior, who alone is able to, by his life and death, to unite unholy people to a holy God. 
God reveals his holiness to us not as a warning that we should run from him in eternal terror, but as a welcome to us to run to him where weak and failing sinners always find grace that lasts forever. In response today, may we be led into a place of fully surrendered worship of the God who is holy. He is other than. May we fall on our knees before him, not as a single act, but as a lifelong posture of worshiping the Holy One. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Today, we're going to be taking communion. So go ahead and grab your elements. There, there's no greater setup in my mind for communion than talking about God's grace. Jesus invited us to remember him every time that we gather in this way, Um, maybe not necessarily this way through a screen, but in this way as well. And I want to read a quote from uh, Josh Butler's book um, called Pursuing God. Listen to this. He says, so today when we receive Christ's body and blood, We are to be formed as an embodied signpost of God's coming kingdom in the midst of our world or in the midst of our modern empires that want to rule the earth without God. We eagerly anticipate God's coming salvation to judge the hostile powers that stand opposed to his kingdom and establish the rule of Jesus fully in their place. The Eucharist or communion with all its Passover imagery is a public proclamation that our Father is coming to reign through Jesus on earth as in heaven, and his kingdom shall be without end. The Spirit and the Bride look over the walls of Babylon and cry out, Come, Lord Jesus, come. We long for our coming deliverance out of our empires into his kingdom. And that day is coming. And then later on, he says this, I'm not taking communion to show Jesus I'll be faithful to him. I'm celebrating the fact that Jesus is faithful to me. And that's what we're going to do here. In light of that, we take the bread, remembering his body, that it was given, what a gift that has been given to us in this, and, and, and we eat this. So go ahead and eat the body that was given to us. And we take the drink, remembering his blood that was spilled out for us. And we consume this as if to say, Jesus, we need you to nourish us. Jesus, we celebrate your faithfulness and we say, come Lord Jesus, come. We are desperate for what only you can provide. Take the drink. God, we've come face to face with the fact that you are so holy. You are so other than, you are so magnificent, so far and and difficult for us to comprehend, but it just reminds us, it humbly reminds us of how little we are and how worthy and big you are. And and God, we come face to face with the, the detriment of our sin But because of that, we're we're reminded at how significant your grace is in Jesus. God, we are soberly aware of the consequences of sin, but we are soberly and desperately aware and 
and in need of the grace that you have wrought on us through the person of Jesus. We thank you. We want to worship you wholeheartedly. You are the Holy One. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.